what grows bigger the more you take from it. That's right, it's the History Obscura Reading Room. Welcome back, dear listeners. Let us move on to part five of our journey from a newspaper room into the halls of an insane asylum in Victorian New York City. Ten Days in the Madhouse by Nellie Bly Chapter 5 Pronounced Insane Here is a poor girl who has been drugged, explained the judge. She looks like my sister, and anyone can see she is a good girl. I am interested in the child, and I would do as much for her as if she were my own. I want you to be kind to her, he said to the ambulance surgeon. Then, turning to Mrs. Stannard, he asked her if she could keep me for a few days until my case was inquired into. Fortunately, she said she could not, because all the women at the home were afraid of me, and would leave if I were kept there. I was very much afraid she would keep me if the pay was assured her, and so I said something about the bad cooking that I did not intend to go back to the home. Then came the examination. The doctor looked clever, and I had not one hope of deceiving him, but I determined to keep up the farce. Put out your tongue, he ordered briskly. I gave an inward chuckle at the thought. Put out your tongue when I tell you, he said. I don't want to, I answered, truthfully enough. You must. You are sick, and I am a doctor. I am not sick and never was. I only want my trunks. But I put out my tongue, which he looked at in a sagacious manner. Then he felt my pulse and listened to the beating of my heart. I had not the least idea how the heart of an insane person beat, so I held my breath all the while he listened, until, when he quit, I had to give a gasp to regain it. Then he tried the effect of the light on the pupils of my eyes. Holding his hand within half an inch of my face, he told me to look at it, then, jerking it hastily away, he would examine my eyes. I was puzzled to know what insanity was like in the eye, so I thought the best thing under the circumstances was to stare. This I did. I held my eyes riveted unblinkingly upon his hand, and when he removed it I exerted all my strength to still keep my eyes from blinking. What drugs have you been taking? He then asked me. Drugs? I repeated, wonderingly. I do not know what drugs are. The pupils of her eyes have been enlarged ever since she came to the home. They have not changed once, explained Mrs. Stannard. I wondered how she knew whether they had or not, but I kept quiet. I believe she has been using belladonna, said the doctor. 
and for the first time I was thankful that I was a little nearsighted, which of course answers for the enlargement of the pupils. I thought I might as well be truthful when I could, without injuring my case, so I told him I was nearsighted, that I was not in the least ill, had never been sick, and that no one had a right to detain me when I wanted to find my trunks. I wanted to go home. He wrote a lot of things in a long, slender book, and then said he was going to take me home. The judge told him to take me and be kind to me, and to tell the people at the hospital to be kind to me too, and to do all they could for me. If we only had more such men as Judge Duffy, the poor unfortunates would not find life all darkness. I began to have more confidence in my ability now, since one judge, one doctor, and a mass of people had pronounced me insane, and I put on my veil quite gladly when I was told that I was to be taken in a carriage, and that afterward I could go home. I am so glad to go with you, I said, and I meant it. I was very glad indeed. Once more, guarded by policeman Brockert, I walked through the little, crowded courtroom. I felt quite proud of myself as I went out a side door into an alleyway where the ambulance was waiting. Near the closed and barred gates was a small office occupied by several men and large books. We all went in there, and when they began to ask me questions, the doctor interposed and said he had all the papers, and that it was useless to ask me anything further, because I was unable to answer questions. This was a great relief to me, for my nerves were already feeling the strain. A rough-looking man wanted to put me into the ambulance, but I refused his aid so decidedly that the doctor and policeman told him to desist, and they performed that gallant office themselves. I did not enter the ambulance without protest. I made the remark that I had never seen a carriage of that make before, and that I did not want to ride in it. But after a while I let them persuade me, as I had right along intended to do. I shall never forget that ride. After I was put in flat on the yellow blanket, the doctor got in and sat near the door. The large gates were swung open, and the curious crowd which had collected swayed back to make room for the ambulance as it backed out. How they tried to get a glimpse at the supposed crazy girl! The doctor saw that I did not like the people gazing at me, and considerately put down the curtains after asking my wishes in regard to it. Still, that did not keep the people away. The children raced after us, yelling all sorts of slang expressions and trying to get a peep under the curtains. It was quite an interesting drive, but I must say that it was an excruciatingly rough one. I held on, only there was not much to hold on to, and the driver drove as if he feared someone would catch up with us. Chapter 6 in Bellevue Hospital At last, Bellevue was reached. 
the third station on my way to the island. I had passed through successfully the ordeals at the home and at Essex Market Police Court, and now felt confident that I should not fail. The ambulance stopped with a sudden jerk, and the doctor jumped out. How many have you? I heard someone inquire. Only one for the pavilion, was the reply. A rough-looking man came forward, and catching hold of me, attempted to drag me out as if I had the strength of an elephant and would resist. The doctor, seeing my look of disgust, ordered him to leave me alone, saying that he would take charge of me himself. He then lifted me carefully out, and I walked with the grace of a queen past the crowd that had gathered, curious to see the new unfortunate. Together with the doctor, I entered a small, dark office where there were several men. The one behind the desk opened a book and began on the long string of questions which had been asked me so often. I refused to answer, and the doctor told him it was not necessary to trouble me further, as he had all the papers made out, and I was too insane to be able to tell anything that would be of consequence. I felt relieved that it was so easy here, as, though still undaunted, I had begun to feel faint for want of food. The order was then given to take me to the insane pavilion, and a muscular man came forward and caught me so tightly by the arm that a pain ran clear through me. It made me angry, and for a moment I forgot my role as I turned to him and said, How dare you touch me? At this he loosened his hold somewhat and I shook him off with more strength than I thought I possessed. I will go with no one but this man, I said, pointing to the ambulance surgeon. The judge said that he was to take care of me, and I will go with no one else. At this, the surgeon said that he would take me, and so we went arm in arm, following the man who had at first been so rough. We passed through the well-care-for grounds, and finally reached the insane ward. A white-capped nurse was there to receive me. This young girl is to wait here for the boat, said the surgeon, and then he started to leave. I begged him not to go, or to take me with him, but he said he wanted to get his dinner first, and that I should wait there for him. When I insisted on accompanying him, he claimed that he had to assist at an amputation, and it would not look well for me to be present. It was evident that he believed he was dealing with an insane person. Just then, the most horrible, insane cries came from a yard in the rear. With all my bravery, I felt a chill at the prospect of being shut up with a fellow creature who was really insane. The doctor evidently noticed my nervousness, for he said to the attendant, What a noise the carpenters make! Turning to me, he offered me explanation to the effect that the new buildings were being erected, and that the noise came from some of the workmen engaged upon it. I told him that I did not want to stay there without him, 
and to pacify me, he promised soon to return. He left me, and I found myself at last an occupant of an insane asylum. I stood at the door and contemplated the scene before me. The long, uncarpeted hall was scrubbed to that particular whiteness seen only in public institutions. In the rear of the hall were large iron doors fastened by a padlock. Several still-looking benches and a number of willow chairs were the only articles of furniture. On either side of the hall were doors leading into what I supposed, and what proved to be, bedrooms. Near the entrance door, on the right-hand side, was a small sitting room for nurses, and opposite it was a room where dinner was dished out. A nurse in a black dress, white cap and apron, and armed with a bunch of keys, had charge of the hall. I soon learned her name, Miss Ball. An old Irish woman was made of all work. I heard her called Mary, and I am glad to know that there is such a good-hearted woman in that place. I experienced only kindness and the utmost consideration from her. There were only three patients, as they are called. I made the fourth. I thought I might as well begin work at once, for I still expected that the very first doctor might declare me sane and send me out again into the wide, wide world. So I went down to the rear of the room and introduced myself to one of the women and asked her all about herself. Her name, she said, was Miss Anne Neville, and she had been sick from overwork. She had been working as a chambermaid, and when her health gave way, she was sent to some sister's home to be treated. Her nephew, who was a waiter, was out of work, and being unable to pay her expenses at the home, had her transferred to Bellevue. Is there anything wrong with you mentally as well? I asked her. No, she said. The doctors have been asking me many curious questions and confusing me as much as possible. But I have nothing wrong with my brain. Do you know that only insane people are sent to this pavilion? I asked. Yes, I know, but I am unable to do anything. The doctors refuse to listen to me, and it is useless to say anything to the nurses. Satisfied, from various reasons that Miss Neville was as sane as I was myself, I transferred my attentions to one of the other patients. I found her in need of medical aid and quite silly mentally, although I have seen many women in the lower walks of life, whose sanity was never questioned, who were not any brighter. The third patient, Mrs. Fox, would not say much. She was very quiet and after telling me that her case was hopeless, refused to talk. I began now to feel surer of my position, and I determined that no doctor should convince me that I was sane so long as I had the hope of accomplishing my mission. A small, fair-complexioned nurse arrived, and after putting on her cap, told Miss Ball to go to dinner. The new nurse, Miss Scott by name, came to me and said, rudely, 
Take off your hat. I shall not take off my hat, I answered. I am waiting for the boat, and I shall not remove it. Well, you're not going on any boat. You might as well know it now as later. You are in an asylum for the insane. Although fully aware of that fact, her unvarnished words gave me a shock. I did not want to come here. I am not sick or insane, and I will not stay, I said. It will be a long time before you get out if you don't do as you are told, answered Miss Scott. You might as well take off your hat, or I shall use force. And if I am not able to do it, I have but to touch a bell and I shall get assistance. Will you take it off? No, I will not. I'm cold and I want my hat on, and you can't make me take it off. I shall give you a few more minutes, and if you don't take it off, then I shall use force, and I warn you that it will not be very gentle. If you take my hat off, I shall take your cap off, so now. Miss Scott was called to the door then, and as I feared that an exhibition of temper might show a little too much sanity, I took off my hat and gloves and was sitting quietly looking into space when she returned. I was hungry and was quite pleased to see Mary make preparations for dinner. The preparations were simple. She merely pulled a straight bench up along the side of a bare table and ordered the patients to gather round the feast. Then she brought out a small tin plate on which there was a piece of boiled meat and a potato. It could not have been colder had it been cooked the week before and it had no chance to make acquaintance with salt or pepper. I would not go up to the table, so Mary came to where I sat in a corner, and while handing out the tin plate, asked, Have ye any pennies about ye, dearie? What? I said, in surprise. Have ye any pennies, dearie, that ye could give me? They'll take them all away from ye anyway, dearie, so I might as well have them. I understood it fully now, but I had no intention of feeing Mary so early in the game, fearing it would have an influence on her treatment of me. So I said I had lost my purse, which was quite true. But though I did not give Mary any money, she was nonetheless kind to me. When I objected to the tin plate in which she had brought my food, she fetched a china one for me. And when I found it impossible to eat the food she presented, she gave me a glass of milk and a soda cracker. All the windows in the hall were open, and the cold air began to tell on my southern blood. It grew so cold indeed as to be almost unbearable, and I complained of it to Miss Scott and Miss Ball. But they answered curtly that as I was in a charity place, I could not expect much else. All the other women were suffering from the cold, and the nurses themselves had to wear heavy garments to keep themselves warm. I asked if I could go to bed. They said no. At last, Miss Scott got an old grey shawl, and shaking some of the moths out of it, told me to put it on. It's a rather bad-looking shawl, I said. 
Well, some people would get along better if they were not so proud, said Miss Scott. People on charity should not expect anything and should not complain. So, I've put the moth eaten shawl, with all its musty smell, around me, and sat down on a wicker chair, wondering what would come next, whether I should freeze to death or survive. My nose was very cold, so I covered up my head and was in a half doze when the shawl was suddenly jerked from my face, and a strange man, and Miss Scott, stood before me. The man proved to be a doctor, and his first greetings were, I've seen that face before. Then you know me? I asked, with a great show of eagerness that I did not feel. I think I do. Where do you come from? From home. Where is home? Don't you know? Cuba. He then sat down beside me, felt my pulse, looked at my tongue, and at last said, Tell Miss Scott all about yourself. No, I will not. I will not talk with women. What do you do in New York? Nothing. Can you work? No, senor. Tell me, are you a woman of the town? I do not understand you, I replied, heartily disgusted with him. I mean, have you allowed the men to provide for you and keep you? I felt like slapping him in the face, but I had to maintain my composure, so I simply said, I do not know what you are talking about. I always lived at home. After many more questions, fully as useless and senseless, he left me and began to talk with the nurse. Positively demented, he said. I consider it a hopeless case. She needs to be put where someone will take care of her. And so I passed my second medical expert. After this, I began to have a smaller regard for the ability of doctors than I ever had before, and a greater one for myself. I felt sure now that no doctor could tell whether people were insane or not, so long as the case was not violent. Later in the afternoon, a boy and a woman came. The woman sat down on a bench, while the boy went in and talked with Miss Scott. In a short time, he came out, and, just nodding goodbye to the woman, who was his mother, went away. She did not look insane, but as she was German, I could not learn her story. Her name, however, was Mrs. Louise Schantz. She seemed quite lost, but when the nurses put her at some sewing, she did her work well and quickly. At three in the afternoon, all the patients were given a gruel broth, and at five, a cup of tea and piece of bread. I was favored, for when they saw it was impossible for me to eat the bread, or drink the stuff honored by the name of tea, they gave me a cup of milk and a cracker, the same as I had had at noon. Just as the gas was being lighted, another patient was added. She was a young girl, 25 years old. She told me that she had just gotten up from a sickbed, 
Her appearance confirmed her story. She looked like one who had had a severe attack of fever. I am now suffering from nervous debility, she said, and my friends have sent me here to be treated for it. I did not tell her where she was, and she seemed quite satisfied. At 6.15, Miss Ball said that she wanted to go away, and so we would all have to go to bed. Then each of us, we now numbered six, were assigned a room and told to undress. I did so and was given a short, cotton flannel gown to wear during the night. Then she took every particle of the clothing I had worn during the day and, making it up in a bundle, labeled it brown and took it away. The iron-barred window was locked, and Miss Ball, after giving me an extra blanket, which she said was a favor rarely granted, went out and left me alone. The bed was not a comfortable one. It was so hard, indeed, that I could not make a dent in it, and the pillow was stuffed with straw. Under the sheet was an oilcloth spread. As the night grew colder, I tried to warm that oilcloth. I kept on trying, but when morning dawned and it was still as cold as when I went to bed, and had reduced me, too, to the temperature of an iceberg, I gave it up as an impossible task. I had hoped to get some rest on this, my first night in an insane asylum, but I was doomed to disappointment. When the night nurses came in, they were curious to see me and to find out what I was like. No sooner had they left than I heard someone at my door inquiring for Nellie Brown, and I began to tremble fearing always that my sanity would soon be discovered. By listening to the conversation, I found it was a reporter in search of me, and I heard him ask for my clothing so that he might examine it. I listened quite anxiously to the talk about me, and was relieved to learn that I was considered hopelessly insane. That was encouraging. After the reporter left, I heard new arrivals, and I learned that a doctor was there and intended to see me. For what purpose, I knew not, and I imagined all sorts of horrible things, such as examinations and the rest of it, and when they got to my room I was shaking with more than fear. Nellie Brown, here is the doctor. He wishes to speak with you, said the nurse. If that's all he wanted, I thought I could endure it. I removed the blanket which I had put over my head in my sudden fright, and looked up. The sight was reassuring. He was a handsome young man. He had the air and address of a gentleman. Some people have since censured this action, but I feel sure, even if it was a little indiscreet, that the young doctor only meant kindness to me. He came forward seated himself on the side of my bed, and put his arm soothingly around my shoulders. It was a terrible task to play insane before this young man, and only a girl can sympathize with me in my position. How do you feel tonight, Nellie? he asked easily. Oh, I feel all right. But you are sick, you know, he said. Oh, am I? 
I replied, and turned my head on the pillow and smiled. When did you leave Cuba, Nellie? Oh, you know my home? I asked. Yes, very well. Don't you remember me? I remember you. Do you? And I mentally said I should not forget him. He was accompanied by a friend who never ventured a remark, but stood staring at me as I lay in bed. After a great many questions, to which I answered truthfully, he left me. Then came other troubles. All night long, the nurses read one to the other aloud, and I know that the other patients, as well as myself, were unable to sleep. Every half hour or hour, they would walk heavily down the halls, their boot heels resounding like the march of a private of dragoons, and take a look at every patient. Of course, this helped to keep us awake. Then, as it came toward morning, they began to beat eggs for breakfast, and the sound made me realize how horribly hungry I was. Occasional yells and cries came from the mail department, and that did not aid in making the night pass more cheerfully. Then, the ambulance going, as it brought in more unfortunates, sounded as a knell to life and liberty. Thus, I passed my first night as an insane girl at Bellevue. Thank you for listening, and do consider buying us a cup of tea for our troubles. You can find the link in the show notes, or search History Obscura on buymeacoffee.com. Good night!